Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and I am doing a third day in a row of radio, which is something that I have not done for years. I, I guess I did something like this in 2013 when I was guest hosting for Tammy Bruce quite a bit, but I do remember that I was alternating with some other guest hosts, even though it was quite a long stretch. So I'm not even sure if I had three days in a row before. Some people are asking if there is sound or is not sound. Hopefully everyone is refreshing and uh, actually getting some sound there. I'm sure that's what needs to happen for these people. I don't know why Blog Talk Radio makes it that you have to refresh at the beginning of a show just to actually get some real sound, but there it is. Uh, if you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, you will check out what I have on the agenda for today's show. What I, John in the chat room, John Roberts in the chat room is saying, all Amy all the time. Yeah, not just me though, because I had cartoonist Bosch Faustin also guest hosting with me for Tammy Bruce, which has been per usual. But um, yeah, now it's now today it's all me all the time, except for that I invite you today to call in. Uh, with Tammy Bruce's show, she doesn't take callers. I follow, you know, what she does. I was in her Tam chat. I wasn't taking callers. But today, it's back to my show here in the chat room of Blog Talk Radio. And then also, you can call in and tell me what you think. The main topic that I want to talk about today is probably not surprising at all. I want to take a little bit of an angle on it that is more positive and also more uniquely objectivist and it's just asking the question will britain make the most of brexit will britain actually make the most of this take this opportunity to you know uh kind of throw off the shackles of the european union and do something constructive with it and i've seen opinions both ways being expressed out there 
and I've got a number of program notes that's going to invite us to look at different considerations, pro and con. What's the chance that Britain is going to make the most of this? If you want to express your view on this topic, the number to call is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. Make sure when you do call in to press the one key, and then it's going to give me a little question icon here in the switchboard, and then I'll know that you actually want to talk, that you're not just calling in to listen to the show. Tim says that the sound is good. That's great to know. I've been using this direct connect over at Blog Talk Radio for the last several times, and it seems to be working quite well. So I'm I'm pleased with this little setup that I've got going here. I've got my show notes on the iPad, and I've got the, uh, you know, the actual show up and running on the laptop, and it all seems to be copacetic, as people might have said when I was in, in high school. So again, go to DontLetItGo.com, check out all the program notes. I have a couple articles that just kind of give you the basic facts and you know what is going on. I'm going to go over to the New York Times piece that I have, and actually I may end up having to pull that up on the browser if... I get kicked out on the iPad. You know, you have to actually log in to some of these places that have the paywall. Otherwise, you get beyond your certain number of free articles and you can't read it. No, it looks like I'm good here. So, you know, as far as I understand, the vote was 52% to 48%. Am I right in saying that was the final? I know that it was just neck and neck until pretty late last night. To me, I... It, you might say, okay, it's surprising that 48% actually wanted to remain in the European Union, but there were a number of people who were surprised that Britain voted to leave. So that was interesting, uh, you know, to see that they finally did. And I was happy that they did. Yesterday when I was guest hosting for Tammy Bruce, I was hoping that it would be the case that they would vote for this. And uh, it seems that a lot of the right people are aligned one thing that you know that they did, they voted to leave the European Union despite some sort of veiled threats from Barack Obama about negotiating with the EU before Britain, if Britain left, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it was it was just nice to to see that they did this. And the question is, a why did they do it, right? What is it that everybody in Britain actually wants from Brexit? And secondly, even if they did it for a particular reason, what is likely to happen now that they have done it? Uh, you know, even if, for example, a lot of people are doing it because, you know, worst case scenario, there's a left, left-wing media saying it's because of xenophobia. And of course, by that, they would mean some sort of irrational racist xenophobia as opposed to an actual concern for one's own well-being and security. Uh, you know, a security that people see as threatened when you have an unfiltered stream of migrants coming into your country, thanks to the European Union. Um, yeah, people are talking about in the chat room, Cameron resigning and all this. Let's get to the basic facts. What is it that happens now? And if you go, as I said, to the blog at DontLetItGo.com, I have an article that I linked to there. Found it pretty easily. Just, you know, it's not like I'm some 
awesome researcher today, all you have to do is put what is Brexit, right? Because you, you say, okay, they voted for it. Now what in the world is going to happen? And I have an article from Express UK that lays it out pretty clearly. And then I ended up taking some notes so that I could essentialize a bit more what they're saying. But they end up going through all the different factors, right? You know, what is it that's actually going to happen from here on? And then how is that going to affect different sorts of relationships that Britain has with the rest of the world? So the first thing that needs to happen is Britain is apparently going to be the first in history to invoke the so-called Article 50 of the rules of the European Union. There's a rule book that they have. It's going to be the first time in history that Article 50 is invoked. Once Article 50 is invoked, then there is a two-year time clock that starts ticking. And, you know, the Britain has basically the two years to negotiate new arrangements with all of the member countries or if that isn't completed within the two-year time frame, then there's just no relationship at all that is in place between um, you know, any of the European Union countries and Britain. Moreover, any of the trade agreements between the EU and other countries, like United States, for example, right, that Britain was part of, Britain's going to have to renegotiate any of the trade agreements with the countries outside the EU. So Britain has a pile of work to do once this clock starts ticking. Then the question is, when does the, start, the clock start ticking? We've seen that Cameron has now resigned or said he's going to step down, right? And so he is not going to be the one, he said, to invoke this Article 50 and start the clock ticking and do all this stuff. All I guess he plans to do between now and whenever someone new takes over is help to stabilize. There's a lot of all, you know, volatility in the markets and everything that's going on out there, which you might have expected. I don't think any of the stuff that's going on today should be a sign of whatever's going to happen long term. I'm not that pessimistic. You know, Dow is down and uh, the British pound is way down. Buy a whole bunch of pounds, right? If you have money, I guess invest in the pound right now. Any indication of free market principles would tell you that if Britain throws off the shackles of the European Union and therefore is subject to much less economic regulation, you know, a whole layer less of economic regulation than before, that the British pound is going to end up being a good investment in the long term, as long as Britain doesn't mess it up. And that's the kind of thing that we want to be talking about and speculating about here today. So in any event, uh, Cameron stepped down. The two-year clock is probably not going to start ticking until you have a new prime minister who invokes on behalf of the country this Article 50, right? So this is a long process. We can very much cheer the day yesterday that Britain voted to leave, but in terms of something actually happening, it's going to be a long-term process. So there's nothing major going to happen right away. Everything today is the same as it, as it was before, except for now, of course, people are going to start looking toward the future and, and what the future prospects of, of investment are. So um, that needs to happen. They need, of course, to have, you know, get appoint a new prime minister or elect a new prime minister. There's been speculation that the former mayor of London is going to end up being that person, but 
you know, again, we don't know in, until it actually happens. And I don't understand British politics well enough uh, to do this. One article that I read said that there is some chance that the EU will deem the mere vote that has just taken place as an invocation of the Article 50 of the rule book, and that they would do it in sort of a vindictive way, right? Um, Ed, Ed Powell in the chat room says, if only the U.S. Constitution had an Article 50, you know, that you could just easily get out that way. Yeah, one of the things that I have in the program notes is that there is renewed discussion, this is not surprising at all, renewed discussion after the vote to Brexit for Texas to secede from United States, and they're now they're calling it Texit, haha. That's I've seen a pun uh, thrown around out there. That that is, you know, what's the chance of Texit? When uh, uh, Tim in the chat room is asking the London, London mayor, the Muslim, no, London currently has a Muslim mayor. I'm talking about the former mayor, and yes, Ed Powell put his name there in the chat room. Boris Johnson, he's the one who might end up being the. Um, <laughs> End up, end up being the prime minister. I'm giggling because in the chat room, people are liking the pun Texit. Yes. <laughs> Ed Powell says, sign my ass up for Texit. <sighs> yes. State Defiance says, pretty sure we have an Article 50 in Texas. Yeah. I, I think that people in Texas are potentially going to be inspired by this. More you know, close to home in terms of Britain, I'm understanding that there are some other countries who are thinking of exiting the European Union as well, and that would be a hopeful sign. Uh, although I've seen that some people say that even if other countries don't exit the European Union, there are going to be some benefits of Britain exiting the European Union for Europeans who are still stuck in the European Union. So that would be a good thing, right? That there's gonna be some pressure put on the European Union to make lives more free for Europeans, even if they're stuck in the European Union. So that, that's good news as well. Um, Roger in the chat room says, yeah, if there's Texit, then we would lose Ted Cruz. You don't have to lose Ted Cruz. You can move to Texas, right? That could be good. But, uh, yeah, I, you would feel good for Texas, even if you end up not going there. Uh, we'll, we'll see how it goes. So, um, so yeah, so there, you know, there has to be this invocation of Article 50. Will the European Union, in sort of a vindictive, spiteful way, decide to take the mere vote as an invocation of Article 50, or will the invocation of Article 50 and therefore the two-year time clock not start until after a new prime minister, perhaps Boris Johnson, is in office and does this? They're talking about sometime in October maybe that the two-year time clock would start ticking. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's the big... Now, there, there, is, there is actually one article out there that I saw that I wanted to talk about where they're saying maybe Brexit won't actually happen at all, right? This vote is supposedly not binding on the prime minister to invoke article 50. It just gives a sense of the people. You know that the prime minister would have the support of a majority if, um, 
you know, the prime minister goes ahead and invokes that Article 50. Some people are saying, well, is the decision supposed to be left to parliament or is it the prime minister, et cetera. But here's an article that I got from Huffington Post UK. I actually went over to Huffington Post to see a lot of reaction pieces to this, and there's some fun stuff to talk about there. But one interesting piece in terms of what happens from here going forward is this piece I found. It says the Brexit debate is far from over. There will have to be a further vote. And this is written by James Strong, uh, who is, I guess, an expert in in some of what happens from here. Uh, So when will the Brexit negotiations begin? And by Brexit negotiations, they mean the negotiations that Britain has to make with all of the rest of the countries. He says, well, this morning, David Cameron broke two promises that he made during the referendum campaign. He resigned as prime minister, and he announced that he would not immediately inform the European Council that Britain wishes to withdraw from the EU, right? So that two-year time clock is not going to start ticking right away. Um, They're saying Cameron's successor, presumably Boris Johnson, will have to decide in October whether or not to invoke Article 50. It says, early in the campaign, Johnson suggested that Britain might yet be able to wring a better deal, for example, further restrictions on freedom of movement, out of the other EU states if the government already had a mandate to leave. So do you understand that? So here the question is, would Boris Johnson take the view that really all he was interested in was restricting freedom of movement of people throughout the European Union? And would he use the fact that there's now this mandate to leave as a bargaining chip to just negotiate for that one change in the relationship between Britain and the European Union? If you talk about kind of, you know, free market ideas, this would be the worst of all possible worlds, right? If all he's interested in doing is just slamming down immigration, in a, in a way that isn't rational, right? Because I think there is a, a lot to be said for restricting some freedom of movement between these countries. There are some dangerous migrants in some of the other countries, and you want to make sure that those people can't just freely come into the United Kingdom or, or England, right? So there there is a legitimate thing, but there is also some element of you know what the left-wing media is talking about there is a little bit of this element of you know among people of the xenophobia idea so if all they're going to do is put you know really draconian restrictions on freedom of movement in and out of of england and they're not doing it with solely in mind security right uh, all that's going to do is leave all of the economic regulations in place, all of the crippling economic relations from the EU, and and they're they're not going to leave. They're just going to use this as a way to negotiate some sort of better immigration policy. And I think that would be really really unfortunate if if that's what ends up happening. Because you know again, what I was focusing on when I was guest hosting for Tammy Bruce yesterday, and I was hoping for for Brexit, I was focusing on the economic case, what what the Wall Street Journal has deemed the business case for Brexit. And you talk about the fact that the European Union has not acted in furtherance of free trade, even though they say they're in favor of free trade. And isn't, isn't that so common? So there is a chance that Brexit won't even happen despite this vote. 
because whoever comes in is just going to use this Brexit vote mandate as a negotiating chip to get a, quote, better deal with the European Union. And if they do, it's going to be basically like what the GOP does when negotiating with Obama. All the chains and shackles are still going to be on everybody, maybe going to be a little bit better in certain respects. It might even be worse in certain respects if there are some irrational restrictions on freedom of movement between uh, Britain and everywhere else. I've got a couple calls already, so I'm going to go ahead and start taking them. Hi, you're on the air. Who's this? Hello? Hello, Bosch. Oh, hi, Bosch. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing okay here. I'm just trying to, to digest what happens going from here. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I mean, it's uh, and in terms of this not going through, I I'm thinking the losers are spreading that out far and wide. Just a record. You think so? You know? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, because okay. this is a big major hit against them, and they're gonna, you know, they lost already media, so now they're gonna say, you know what? Uh, it's like this: the jihadists and leftists, even when they lose, they keep going. They don't give up like 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 those on the right. They keep going. When Muhammad lost, he kept going. You know, it, it, it didn't matter. So they're because why? Because they're fundamentally losers. You know, so they don't lose because they they just keep going like parasites. But anyway. Uh, Daniel Greenfield had uh, had his his take on it. Can I read it, a little of what he wrote? Sure, sure. He so this is Daniel Green. This is uh, Daniel Greenfield again over at the Point at Front Page Magazine, yes. right? Okay. Right. The great Daniel Daniel Greenfield. He has a piece called "Britain is Free of Global Government. America Can Be Next." Now, Daniel is a pretty hardcore guy. I mean, he writes about jihad. He writes against the enemy. He writes against the left, and uh, and he's very funny. But he's also very optimistic. And not in the you know Pollyannish kind of way. He right. sees things that that are going. I, I I attended a speech that he gave recently, and the thrust of the speech was that we're going to win against Islamic Jihad, and we're going to win. It's inevitable. The truth will out. We're going to get some stronger leaders, and we're going to wet them up. And it's very rare to hear that. Very rare, but it's important to hear that because it's true. And he says, he "Goes the word of the future isn't union; it's freedom. You know, the process has begun that will not end in Britain. It will spread around the world, liberating." nations from multinational institutions. And then he cites this one guy, uh, Count Herman von Rompuy, who was a former president of the European Council. He granted, okay. you know, declared in 2009 when Obama came into office, he was 2009 is also the first year of global governance. Global governance. Wow. And then Daniel adds, he goes, and now it may just well be that 2016 will be the first year of the decline and fall of global governance. Yes. So Brexit showed that it is possible for a great nation to defy its leaders and its establishment figures to throw off its multinational chains. America and Britain are sleeping giants covered in the cold iron links of multi- multinational organizations that limit their strength and their potential, which is the whole purpose of it. It's time to break those chains. And then he, and, and then he has a few more things, just quickly. Well, what mm-hmm. was true of Britain is also true of America. Our elites are just as impotent. The power they have illegally seized is defended zealously by a media palace guard that's, uh, that spends every minute of every day lecturing, hectoring, and messaging Americans. But when no one listens to the media and the men and women who run our lives, quote unquote, run our lives, who feed off us like a colony of parasitic insects, are helpless. Their power is purely persuasive. When, when we stop listening, then, then we are free. And then he adds one last thing. Goes, the elites have gambled everything on big government, big media, big data. But all those lost to Brexit, they lost to Brexit in the UK. They can lose in the, in the US too, and they will lose. And then just my simple take is this, is Britain more or less free today? 
does Britain have more or less control over its destiny today after this vote? Oh, yeah. No, Britain has a lot more control over its destiny. And then the question is, what is Britain going to do with that? No. And given, and that's your point. given and how that's divided point they that's are, good. there's some question about that. Hmm? Yes, no doubt about it. No, and that's the point of your show today, which is, which is great because it's, it's optimistic but also realistic because you don't know. You don't know when people have more freedom what, what they're going to do with it. Are they going yeah, to and, and, you know, another thing, go? another thing that can happen too is Britain itself right? Great Britain might split. So Scotland is right. threatening to have a referendum to get out. Uh, Trump, I guess, made a fool of himself because he was tweeting, you know, he's, he's visiting oh. Scotland and he's tweeting yes, he about, is. you know, Scotland did the right thing and everything. And Scotland, I think, had strongly voted to remain in the European yes. Union and in yes. fact wants to separate itself from England so that it can go back and be a slave, right? right? So, um, right. That's Trump. Embarrassing but that, Trump for Trump. Is. It is, but also he's out there because of his business problems. He has some business problems right now, so he went off his campaign to, to deal with it in Scotland. I mean, come on. This is a, he's in the middle of a major fight you know, to beat Hillary Clinton, but he's out there in Scotland doing something that has nothing to do with his race. Putting and some it's fire a, it's out a bad that move. he created. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Definitely. Definitely. Well, so, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you, Bosch. I was definitely in favor of Brexit. And based on some of the things that I'm reading today, I'm hopeful that Britain is going to make the most of it. And, and uh, we shall see. I'm going to go ahead and grab another call. But one uh, thing also, just, oh, just, just, just mm-hmm. while, uh, people are, are poo-pooing the idea that it had a lot to do with immigration and Muslim, but it does. It, it really does. Despite whatever anyone believes about immigration, or as they call it, you know, people who are xenophobic and whatnot and racist. The fact is um, Europe has allowed itself to be really eaten alive by a lot of this, the, the welfare state. And Muslims rely on the welfare state. They are the main, you know, parasites in a welfare state. And that's a major factor. And it's not to be downplayed, as some people are doing. No, is, no, exactly. And, you know, factor. we have we have the same problem here, of course, in the United States, but they have it to a bigger degree in England because of the amount of so-called public benefits that are given to immigrants. So if you have unrestricted migration into England and England is just doling out all sorts of stuff that, you know, that's a huge drain on the economy itself, despite, you know, in addition to everything. Right. And they they have to pay for other countries because they're one of the biggest, you know, spenders in the European Union. Then Germany, the strong countries are being, you know, like uh, they're being abused and, and, and abused. By yes. the rest of the European Union. Anyway, I just want to add that. All right, take care. Okay, great. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Okay, let me go ahead and get another call. I think this might be Ed. I'm not sure, though. Is this Ed? Yes. Happy Independence Day. Yeah. Well, that was yesterday, right? So we are celebrating, I no, guess. No, no, no. Today. Today. Today is Independence Day. Why, why uh, is it today? The, well, because the vote was announced. Uh, the, the result of the vote was announced on Friday, June 24th. Uh, England time, you know, Britain time. So, hooray. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, th- I, I think it's great. Now, I, I, it looks like from based on the discussion here in the chat room that you're going to introduce me to a new term. You're going to say well, it's not xenophobia. It, it is what? Anti-xenoarchia. It's the uh, opposition to being ruled by foreigners. I mean, that's what this was actually about. It wasn't about 
an irrational fear of foreigners. It was a perfectly rational disgust at being ruled by foreigners. I mean, that, that was the entire point of the Leave campaign, which I've followed closely for over a year. Um, and I think it's just uh, terrific. Um, and what's amazing is, you know, uh, some of the people I follow on Twitter uh, who have, you know, think history began in like 2000. They're all millennials, right? So obviously they think history began in 2000. They have no idea of the uh, history of the European Union and what has actually gone on. Um, and uh, they have, the European Union has ignored every single um, democratic uh, expression of people in France and Denmark, in Belgium that, you know, hey, we, got, we don't want this close political union. We like the whole free trade thing, but we don't want this close. And they've ignored every single one of it. And they will, in fact, ignore this one, by the way. Um, if, and you mentioned it earlier with Cameron not immediately invoking Article 50 like he planned. Right. This is uh, now he couldn't not immediately invoke Article 50 and keep his job. They okay. still have a little. They they still have a little bit of um, shame honor in Britain, <laughs> honor, Brit- yeah. British politics. Yes, honor and shame. We're, we seem not to have any of that anymore. But mm-hmm. they seem to have a little bit of it. So he, he broke that promise, and then he, he said, well, I'm quitting. But, of course, he's not quitting today. He's quitting in October. And what's going to happen, of course, is that um, the people who stand to lose from this are going to um, mobilize to the point where. Um, what, do you, what do you think the chances are of the European Union, out of spite, deciding to deem Article 50 ha- as having been invoked? and starting the two-year time clock now, despite the fact that Cameron is not going to pull the trigger himself. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I read some articles about that this morning, and uh, that would be great. Uh, the, the issue is that none of the people in these countries, you know, the majority of Frenchmen don't want this closer political integration. The majority of Germans don't want closer political integration the majority of Greeks. I mean, none of them want, you know, none of them want it. And with this vote, there are uh, domestic votes coming up in some of these countries. And uh, if this thing is sort of hanging around, it could affect the domestic politics of the countries. And so the, the thought is, let's, let's kick them the hell out now so that we can recover from this because it's going to infect the entire European uh, continent with everybody wanting to be independent. And, you know, they, they don't want, you know, they don't, obviously they don't want that. So uh, no, and I mean, you know, if if they're worried, if they're worried about, you know, some sort of drawn out inspirational effect of this on everybody, maybe, you know, yeah, it is better just kick them out right away, start the process going and then, the short-term memory that everybody always counts on that people who, you know, would want freedom otherwise seem to have, right. Uh, that I guess kicks in. And at a certain point people just forget, Oh yeah, Brexit. Oh, what was that again? Um, yeah. Some xenophobic people. No, no, we, we're not xenophobic. Right. And that's, yeah, that would be, I mean, obviously, obviously there is some, um, discussed in Britain as there is in the United States about 
um, foreigners coming in and, and cutting, you know, under, undercutting the wages of, of native British workers. I mean, that certainly happens in the United States, and there are people who are mad about it, and it happens in, in Britain, too, and the same people are mad about it. It, it. it generally doesn't happen to lawyers like yourself or to scientists like myself, but it does happen to uh, the, the more unskilled the labor, the, the more it happens. And so um, there, there is a part of it that is that. Um, but I mean, they all know but, that the solution uh, is just to invoke a minimum wage, right? I'm joking, of course, because well, I mean, that's wages. the solution. That's the solution to all economic problems: is just raise the minimum wage to fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, and and all our Woo-hoo. economic problems will be will be uh, gone. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. So yeah, no, awesome. this is a great. This is a this is a great thing. I think it's it's. Uh, um, you know, the people I see on Twitter, oh, my God, this is terrible. I mean, are, would they be in favor of a, a North American union between Canada, the United States, and Mexico, where there would right. be North American union judges ruling uh, against American laws uh, or Canadian judges right. ruling against? I mean, that's just crazy. Nobody in the United States. I mean, if that were put, let's do a North American union to, to vote in the America. We'll lose like 90 to 10. Maybe you know what? I loved – I loved um, seeing that the Queen, you know, Queen Elizabeth, that her comments about Brexit were leaked out there. I guess she was at a dinner party or something. And she, yeah, and she had talked about the fact that the courts of the European Union were not just courts, that they were not doing what was necessary to protect British citizens from, right, the UK citizens from the you know terrorism right so it's amazing that that she said that and and she also she also asked she said she said uh she said uh she asked the people at the dinner party i guess to to give three good reasons to be in the european union three good reasons to be in and that's really the question that needed to be asked you know you don't use as a starting point well we're already in there so you know hey the you know we should presume that we should stay you know i was i was using the analogy of a costco membership yesterday you know your costco membership comes up for renewal every year and if you are a rational person then you should every year decide does it make sense for me to be part of costco you don't just let the fee come onto your credit card and you know whatever if you don't need like 50 million years worth of toilet paper in one shot then you know, you decide, okay, my purchasing needs don't reflect a, the value of the membership of Costco, right? And similarly, yeah, you're, you're going to be in a club, you're going to, you know, you should reevaluate that membership and you, and you should reevaluate evaluate it from the standard of give me an argument for being in. And I, I love that she did yeah. that. Yeah, no, and as far as the, you know, um, Scots uh, wanting to be independent of the United Kingdom, um, you know, uh, my my practical advice on any of these votes is if the result of the vote is going to be more freedom, vote yes, and, and if not, vote no. And obviously the Scots uh, politicians are crazy socialists and who want to make Scotland into Venezuela. And if Scotland were to declare independence from the United Kingdom, it would be Venezuela on the North Sea. And so I would vote against it. I mean, in principle, I, I think there's nothing wrong with Scotland to uh, declaring independence if it wasn't for the suicidal politicians who run Scottish politics. As right, because they, they're they just doing it because they want to stay in the too. EU. Yeah, yeah they're, well, they're just they, do, you know, doing it. 
Go ahead. I think there's a, a lot of money flows from England to Scotland. Scotland is a, is a sort of a, a welfare basket case. And okay. I, think that, um, I, I think that if Scotland actually did declare independence from England um, and, and the money from Westminster stopped flowing to Scotland, um, the people would wake up, you know, and have to either get it. They'd, they'd either go Venezuela or they'd wake up and realize they have to get a job. Uh, and so I think it's like 50-50 whether they sort of realize that independence means they're going to have to work again or they're going to, you know, go the Venezuela path. Um, I, you know, I think Venezuela is the goal of the left in this country. I mean, no, they don't, they don't want starving and rioting in the streets necessarily, but they want all the policies that lead to starving and rioting in the streets. Yeah, somehow and they're so, going to be able to institute those policies without having the starving and rioting in the streets, they think, right? That's right. That's right. Talk they think there's, you know, we can we can do it better. We can, you know, we can implement communism better. Um, and so, you know, as far as Scotland wanting to be independent, you know, knock yourselves out. I, I think the Scottish are not quite as awful as the Venezuelans. I, I think they would realize when the spigot uh, of money from Westminster turns off that they would have to actually get a job. Right. Um, they they're they're counting on the North Sea oil, by the way. Um, to to maintain the Scottish welfare state. Uh, uh, now, what country does that remind you? Oh, yes, Venezuela, right? And, and <laughs> that's you know that's never going to happen, right? In in the right. sense that the 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 government is not capable of running an oil industry. So um, it would be. I love Scotland. We went to our honeymoon in Scotland. I would like. Uh, you know, I don't want Scotland to I've ruin never, itself, I've never been it, it to might. Scotland. I've never been there, but um, I'm actually part Scottish, so I would like to go there, but I don't want to go there if oh, it's yeah. turning into Venezuela. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. Go soon. Uh, that's why I went to Turkey uh, four or five years ago, because it, yeah. it was time. Um, right. But, yeah, I, I, I don't know. But, yeah, independence. Uh, the one other point, and I'll let you go, is that sure. – there, there seems in the United States, and this is kind of, um, you know, very long-standing. This idea that borders are sacred, that you know, that drawing this line on the map here, rather than there, it is a holy, mystical thing. That there's that that divine providence has drawn this line here, and it can never be anywhere but there. I mean, that's right. really what the the thought was um and I, I, that 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 was lincoln's view of of what it was i mean it was a purely mystical view of the union i'm certainly not in favor of the confederacy but the the idea that these lines are are mystically divined um and that we can't change them i mean is the essence it, it is truly a religious argument uh against redrawing the lines and right uh Obviously, I'm against mysticism. So, no, That's exactly. Why I, and I don't know if you got to listen um, to the Tammy Bruce episodes or not, but one example that I went not the just yesterday's. So you, yeah, you heard you heard the one analogy that I brought in, which was probably one of the better points from the day before, which was the issue of the 1967 Israel borders, right? And you know, the idea that when they're trying to pressure Israel into these negotiations and use as a starting point the pre-1967 borders. 
and that somehow these pre-1967 borders have some mystical uh, moral significance of any kind. And no, they don't. And in fact, you would say the borders that should be a starting point would be the borders that allow Israel to actually exist as a state. Yeah. And those those are clearly the post-1967 borders, right? Um, borders, they serve purposes. They don't have some kind of, you know, uh, apart from reality, mystical significance there needs to be a context associated with the the right borders as as you point out they're not in the the world of forms so when uh, texit happens i'll meet you there (laughs) when texit happens Uh, we're all going to go there the question is where where in uh where in the new state of texas are we going to be able to survive because now there's no uber in austin and i liked austin otherwise right yeah but so i mean have you ever been to dallas dallas is a great city or or uh you know, I've been to Dallas little a little, but not enough. I haven't sloppy, spent much but, time there in Dallas. I just don't want to be in yeah. Houston. No offense to Ted Cruz. I know he's from Houston, but Houston's weather. Uh, yeah, yeah, so, Houston's a little swampy. Um, I lived in the yeah, Houston we'll area for three in, years as a kid. I have vast experience. We'll all meet in, uh, we'll all meet in Texas, uh, and uh, you can't survive in California. Uh, for more than a few more years anyway. So you're going to have to think long-term about where you're going to move to. So you better start thinking about it now. Virginia is a little bit better, but, you know, not much. No, if if you're going to move, you know, maybe Texas. uh, I sometimes think of Colorado. Some people are doing a uh, Idaho thing because I guess there are some places in Idaho in particular that – have great rules about concealed carry and stuff, you know, these kind of things that allow you to actually defend yourself. Awesome. Well, Virginia is great on that. Texas is, is good. Uh, you know, all there are 40 states that are t- fine on self-protection. It's only the 10 obvious ones, uh, you know, New England, California, Illinois. Now, that are, that are I, I, have, I have offended the Houstonians in the chat room. Let me say what I think is good about Houston. See, the, the bad thing about Houston is weather. And weather is extremely important, at least in, in my – oh, uh, Ed, you're showing that you are multitasking because you put Waco in the chat yeah, room Yeah, Waco's a nice – and you know what? I'm gonna, I have a bone to pick you about weather. I mean, okay. you gloat. Like nine months of the year, you gloat <laughs> about how great the weather is in California. And on the first hot day, you post on Facebook, oh, my God, it's so hot, like you're a little girl. But it wasn't just it's hot. Like, it was it was hot that was unlike anything that we're supposed to be having here in California. It was Las Vegas hot. It was Phoenix hot. We're talking 111 degrees. That's ridiculous. That's hot. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. hot. That's, uh, that's not bad. I don't care. Move to a real, move to a real place. Well, thank you, uh, Ed, for calling, and um, you're welcome. Definitely, definitely feel free to tell me if you're on the line again, and I, I mess up somewhere down the line. You need to correct me. You can call back in. Thanks very much. I'm going to go ahead and grab another call that I've got here. Hi, this is Amy with you. Who is this? Hi, uh, this is Charles. Charles. Uh, how are you? Welcome. I'm doing okay. So what do you think of Brexit? Uh I think it's awesome. I think that if even the British squander this and they leave just to install kind of French-style socialism, it's still pretty awesome because what this really is is that it's a massive chink in the armor of global leftism. Um, The EU 
was a body or is a body and is now less of a body that pushes, you know, global climate change accords, uh, pressures Israel into uh, surrendering to its enemies, uh, is, you know, somewhat anti-American. And today uh, they now face a permanent state of disillusion because the, the European Union is in the same place America was in 1860, where if one state leaves, potentially any state can leave, and the union is dissolved, which, whether you like Lincoln or not, his position was that the union's indivisible, and he went through a massive war uh, to keep the union indivisible, and the people in Brussels, I don't think, are going to invade England, and I saw this morning at about 4 a.m. my time, on mountain time, I'm here in West Texas, uh, mm-hmm. they were interviewing an, an EU official on CNN, and he was making it quite clear that they're going to make this as painful as possible uh, to dissuade other uh, nations from leaving the EU. And, you know, these people are very vindictive, and they don't believe in sovereignty at all, and they right. want to really make this hurt uh, to try, hopefully to dissuade any future exits and to maintain what's left of the EU, but I don't think it'll succeed. So, uh, I mean, how, what what can they practically do, though, right? So you've got the EU guy who is determined to make it, quote, really painful, but once this two-year clock stops, you know, starts ticking, then basically, you know, a- after the two years – none of the EU regulations or any of the control the EU would have over the UK exists anymore. It's done. So what is it that they can do? So they're going to do something in the, in the meantime, in the interim, while the two years is ticking to try to make it really painful. Uh, you know, none of that's going to have any staying power in it. And certainly Britain can do a lot to make it very painful for the EU in return. Yes. Yeah, and the you know I think they're even confused about what to do, because you know there was another EU official I saw uh, in an article uh, who said, well the clock should start ticking now and we should kick them out immediately. Right. Uh, kind of you know this we're going to rip the bandaid off and make it as painful as possible to get out of here, and his position was that's what. That's what needs to be done, and I'm sure there's other EU officials that think they'd like to make it a slow bleed. Um, so I think they're all confused as what to do, but all they know is that they're threatened, uh, their agendas are threatened. And even I read another article in the Washington Post that just came out not that long ago about uh, the Paris Climate Accord is now in jeopardy because of this. It has to be recalibrated because England has exited. And uh, they don't know what that recalibration means. And it opens it up to severe weakening and to rewrites and to all kinds of things that they can do to it. Uh, right. And so it's, that's problematic to, to these you know, anti-humanists uh, who want to control uh, climate emissions globally. It's problematic mm-hmm. to global leftism as a whole. And I think you know, it, it's going to mm-hmm. be great for Israel in the long run. And what the, the EU can do uh, if they, you know, really cared so much, uh, is they can take Gaza and put it in the UK's place. 
And what do you mean by that exactly? I'm just being facetious. Uh, like okay. you know, they love Gaza so much. Uh, you know, I mean, they should just take them. You know, give them EU protections or let let them live under EU mandates. Right. Uh, but but you know what's happening now is that it's wonderful uh, for freedom-loving people, even if England squanders it, because. You know, you look at the polls, easily 60% to 65% of French people want to leave, too. Yeah, Uh, they have even more experience with the negative effects of the migration policy, right, than Britain does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a suicidal, you know, anti-Western, anti-capitalism, global leftist cult is what it basically is. And That's it's, a good way to put it, it. It is, and it's just wonderful that this dissolution is now on their doorstep, and it's going to continue. I mean, it, they've opened themselves up now to any future grievance any nation has. That nation can always stage a referendum vote to leave, and even if a vote fails, they can always stage another one later. So they're, they're right. permanently going to be having uh, their weak spots hit. What do you uh, what do you now. think um what do you think the chances are that a Boris Johnson comes in though and says, "Well, I just wanted to get this referendum done so that we had the negotiating power. Let's actually stay in the EU, but let's tweak some immigration policy here or there, maybe a couple things having to do with regulations, but huh, let's just not throw the shackles off at this point." Do you think there's any chance that that's going to happen? Uh, I, I don't think there's any chance that he would do it. Uh, I think that if, you know, something drastic happens and, like, labor stages a comeback and takes over the country, then they can scuttle the whole thing. But right. um, but he personally, he's pretty good, and he's pretty good on climate change. He doesn't like the Paris Climate Accords. He doesn't like any of this kind of stuff. And so I he's got, he's got other reasons. He's got he's got a lot of fish to fry in terms of getting rid of the EU shackles. And you think he'll he'll stay coarse? Yeah, he, there's all kinds of things he despises about the EU. He despises yeah. their controls on the economy. He despises immigration. I don't think there's any way he'd use this as a negotiating chip to partially sell the UK back into the EU just to get some other things out of the EU. And yeah. you know. That is that's that's so, good to hear. That's good to hear because you know it could be that it was just this leftist guy at Huffington Post UK wanted to see that happen, or at least wanted to throw it out there to get people on board with something like that. You know, the idea like, look, we can have another referendum and undo this. You know, and then they say like, you know, six people regretted their vote to leave or something, as if that somehow means that there's a whole ton of people that regret their vote to leave and that we should, you know, they should do a new referendum and then it would come out differently blah 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 right um yeah yeah. you know the leftists are pulling at every you know last uh uh you know grip they can get on this thing and also you know there was a lot of self-delusion is that a lot of them believed it was never going to happen and you know they're blaming the economy now these uh these dips in the global economy and in the british pound and everything on the exit but it has nothing to do with the exit is everything to do with the fact that uh, they all bet the wrong way because they were all convinced it was never going to happen. If they all bet the other way that they were going to leave, the markets in the pound would be rising, not falling. And um, uh, another thing that's happening 
is, you know, they're trying essentially, I read this article from one of these leftists in England, that, you know, they'd be happy to kind of make London its own city-state. Yeah, uh, I saw a little bit on that. How does that work practically when London's right in the middle of England? I I would surely hope that somebody would, would not do that. You know, one thing about actually seceding, right? What what do we do when we evaluate the morality of someone's decision to leave a particular political union? Uh, here it is that the European Union has probably not protected the citizens of the member countries properly, right, with respect to the policy on migrants and the way that the courts of the European Union have ruled in particular cases having to do with terrorism. So there's some evidence of that. And then, of course, there's a pile of evidence that the trade in all of those countries is less free, that all of the economy in those countries is more regulated and therefore more constrained and less productive than it would be under the EU. You know, that Britain, uh, you know, Great Great Britain, the UK, is, is actually more productive than the a lot of the other EU member countries, that the other EU member countries are pulling the UK down economically as well. So there's a, a lot of evidence that there is, you know, a perfectly moral case for exit. It was different, of course, for the Confederate states, right? Insofar as the Confederate states, the United States wanted to leave because they wanted to retain the institution of slavery, then we're not going to accept that as a moral reason, you know, to, to leave a political union. And so you might say, okay, a war in that case is appropriate, but are people, you know, so corrupt, so evil these days that they would actually use war against a country who is exiting from a political union for what we can tell are moral reasons, right? That's the question. I, I would sure hope not. No, uh, I hope not too, but I think uh, these leftists, I don't think they have the will uh, to do it, even if they had the authority to, because there's no global EU army unless, you know, they'd use Germany or some other, you know, conglomeration of EU states as as armies on behalf of the European Union, which I think is a really, really, really long shot. I don't think it would ever happen. So they're faced with this, uh, with this permanent, you know, threat to their union. And it's absolutely right. Now, now England has the problem of Scotland potentially leaving and that's uh, immoral. You know, I mean, to sell Scotland back into E into the EU, uh, and to have to make them subject to all these climate accords and economic regulations and, uh, you know, laws without representation. And yeah, but I mean, you know, what, what, um, what from, you know, Ed was telling us, what the, from what he was telling us about Scotland, the U.K. might be better off if Scotland left, right? Well, the U.K. as a whole, uh, yeah, maybe, but... Scotland decided to stay, and if I was reading that these Scottish parties, like the Green Party, the Scottish Green Party, and all these, you know, no, no, no. I mean, I mean, I mean that the UK, the UK as a whole, would be better off if Scotland left the UK, right? So if Scotland truly is the drain on the UK that Ed was talking about earlier, maybe that would be better. Um, I did want to go back to a point that I saw here in the chat room, and I don't know if you want to hang on and talk about it, Charles, or um, you want to. 
let me go ahead and, and just address it. But people were talking about the fact that, you know, now, of course, the EU is going to have to negotiate a new trade agreement with Britain. And the thought is, is that that trade agreement could be made in such a way so as to, quote, punish Britain. But I don't know how much the EU could actually punish Britain in a trade agreement. The EU, excuse me, uh, Britain, the UK, has a, you know, a history of unilateral free trade agreements where they realize that free trade, even if they only uh, lower the trade barriers on their side, benefits them. And so if, you know, Britain was very aggressive about, you know, free trade agreements, not just with the EU, they said, okay, EU, try to punish us, go right ahead, but we're going to go ahead and lower trade barriers and we're going to get the cheaper goods that way. Um, you know, go ahead and try and punishment. You're just going to punish yourselves. I don't know how far that the EU could actually go in terms of punishing them economically. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what they would do, except, you know, if you refuse to trade out of a, you know, a stupid reason, you know, anything other than, you know, the person you're trading with, you know, wants you dead, um, then you're just hurting yourself. I mean, I don't see what they yeah. can do to England. And but, you know, it, we're going to have to wait and see, because, if it, you know, like you're saying, if it takes two years to finally exit, uh, who knows what these people sitting on these EU commissions are going to come up with over the next two years uh, to make this process as ridiculous and as painful and as, you know, burdensome as they possibly can. So I'm sure they'll try to come up with some really clever things. Yeah, I, I agree. Thanks for calling in, Charles. And we will definitely talk again. Ed here in the chat room seems to agree with me about this. He says the EU needs Britain way more than the Britain needs the EU trade-wise. And so I would assume, you know, two years when you've got this massive extra layer of bureaucracy that they have to figure out, you know, either how to replace or, or you know, what Britain is going to do when these rules are gone and, you know, what is the EU going to do without Britain being there as some sort of hogtied slave? That, that might be a good way to see it. Um, I think the EU is better served to think about how to best weather the storm when Britain is gone as opposed to focusing on punishing Britain. If they try to focus on punishing Britain, they're only, only going to hurt themselves as far as I can tell. Um, yeah, so people are now having a discussion about succession in the South and everything and what was it about. Uh, they're saying, no, it's about restrictions and taxes. That's what it was really about, not about slavery. Um, so we'll have to have that debate about Southern succession an, another day. Um, we could go ahead and, and do our fact-checking, but the, you know, the question is, what is a moral succession? Clearly, what Britain is doing is moral, right? They are throwing off the shackles of the EU, which has done nothing but restrict the freedoms and perhaps make the member countries less safe. So if Britain is leaving, I think it's a healthy development. But then the question will be, what are they going to do with it? There's one article that I found full of hope, 
And it's written by Dan Sanchez over at FEE.org. Thanks for people who are sending this around today. I think Mark Wickens was among them, although I don't know if I gave him the hat tip that I should have at, at the blog. Uh, again, go to DontLetItGo.com. DontLetItGo.com is where I've got a list of all the program notes for today. But Dan over at FEE writes, he says, British voters have elected to leave the European Union in a national referendum. The UK Independence Party leader, Nigel Farage, declared Friday Britain's Independence Day. Quite a statement given British history. A little over two and a quarter centuries ago, America had its own first Independence Day, and the British Empire was the super state from which Americans declared independence. He says, history has come full circle. In a sense, today we are seeing the American Revolution in reverse. Now, why? He says, in many ways, the European Union is a lever of the U.S. global hegemony. <laughs> he says, by seceding from the EU, in spite of threats from Washington, Britain is declaring partial independence from America. And he says, you know, independence, of course, is not isolation. He says, this is the key distinction that is intentionally blurred by the, quote, better together rhetoric of the Remain camp. He says, when the Remain camp scaremonger about quote, leaving Europe, it conjures images of Britain abandoning Western civilization. He says, but the West, as in the U.S.-led alliance of neo-colonial powers, is not the same thing as Western civilization. He says, the European Union is not the same thing as Europe. Exiting a megastate in defiance of an imperium is not withdrawing from civilization. He says, in fact, such, a, such an exit is propitious for civilization. And then what he goes on to talk about in this article is that even if there are forces, you know, political forces within Britain that are determined to not make the most of this opportunity, to do things that are going to maybe institute equally bad regulations at the country level, et cetera, he says – Basically, by having this, you know, Great Britain leave the European Union, there are certain sort of economic laws that come into play that will push Britain and also the European Union in a better direction in terms of freedom and economic freedom in particular. Why? Because what happens is then you now have more competition, right? So there's a section of this piece called Small is Beautiful. He says, advocates of international unions and super states claim that centralization promotes trade and peace, that customs unions break down trade barriers and international government prevents war. And he says, in reality, super states encourage two things that are bad. One is protectionism and the other is warfare. And why is that? If you have a big trade block then you can cope with the so-called economic isolation that comes with protectionism. And I wouldn't even say so-called because it is economic isolation. If you are choosing to erect huge trade barriers, right, if you're choosing to do that, you're going to be able to weather the ill effects of erecting huge trade barriers if you are a bigger trade block. And so the European Union when it has Great Britain in it, they can have less free trade and still weather that storm of, you know, that's created by that if they have Britain in than if they don't. Similarly, Britain is not going to be able to erect the 
you know, harmful trade barriers that it, you know, had as part of the European Union. So there's going to be freer trade, even if there are people within Britain who would like to have all this protectionism and stuff, the economic forces are going to kind of push against it. It's going to push them towards. So it's going to make it more painful to have these trade barriers, and therefore you would expect that there are going to be fewer trade barriers. Now, you know, there are people who are determined to commit suicide, right, so that even if they know that erecting trade barriers is going to hurt them, they would do it anyway. But hopefully rationality is going to win out. There's, they're going to see a higher cost to erecting trade barriers now that they are out of the European Union, and therefore those trade barriers are going to be less likely to exist. Not to mention the fact that Great Britain has a history that I've seen written glowingly about recently, uh, a, a history of unilaterally lowering trade barriers regardless. You know, unilateral free trade is something that Britain brags about. Um, so that's one thing, right? The, the issue of protectionism. There's less likely to be protectionism once you make both the, you know, the European Union smaller by removing Britain, and also you, um, you know, Britain itself is a smaller unit and therefore less likely. So the Europeans who remain in the European Union, even if they can't, you know, through their own countries leave the European Union, they're more likely to be better off because the European Union is going to face pressure to lower those trade barriers. Then the second thing is the issue of warfare. And, um, you know, again, what Sanchez writes over here at FEE is he says that if you have a bigger military block, then it's easier for a bellicose country to externalize the costs of their belligerence. Uh, what do they do? They drag the rest of the military block into their fights. So you're likely to have more peace with a smaller country that would have to internalize all the costs of any, you know, irrational warfare. Obviously, you know, if, if you need to defend yourself, you're going to have to defend yourself, and that's regardless of whether you're large or small. So you could say, okay, well, uh, on the other hand, you know, what about that? Now, internalizing the cost of defending your own borders when the territory is smaller, there should be a correlation, right? So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that you'd say, oh, well, you should stay in a bigger union simply because of the cost of self-defense. Maybe there are some ways that joining with other people is going to aid in, in your rational self-defense, but, you know, it, it's not going to be the same as if you're a, an actual aggressive nation. So there's that. A small political unit, he says, cannot afford economic isolationism. It simply doesn't have the domestic resources necessary. So he says, for all of the UKIP's isolationist rhetoric, insofar as there is this isolationist rhetoric, he says the practical result of UK independence from the European economic policy bloc would likely be freer trade and cross-border labor mobility. He says political independence fosters economic independence and economic interdependence increases the opportunity costs of war and it also uh, increases the benefits of peace. So this is going to be really nice to see. And he's saying that these factors, these pressures, these practical pressures are going to exist regardless of what any isolationist comes into it thinking in advance. And therefore, we should we should have more hope that Britain will indeed make the most of 
the the Brexit, so to speak. Um, now they're saying uh, Britain succeeded from the union should seceded from the union. Should there be a war to preserve the union? There should, should certainly, I think, not be a war. Um, it would it would be a disaster if there was some sort of war to try to keep Britain in the union. I do actually. I think that may have. That may have also been Charles. If anybody else does want to call in and talk about this topic, it's 760-888-5817. I did talk about earlier the fact that Trump was in Scotland, and he was basically trying to compare the EU vote uh, to his campaign and everything else and to cheer Scotland, but then I think he was embarrassed by the fact that Scotland, in fact, voted to remain in the EU Obama, who in advance of the vote had essentially threatened to negotiate trade agreements with the EU first before it negotiated trade agreements with Britain, I think among the threat of other consequences. Nonetheless, now that he's been smacked down, you know, people are saying he's been smacked down twice in two days. His immigration policy failed at the Supreme Court. And now Brexit, despite the fact that arguably he was immorally trying to sway the vote in England by, you know, stating that he's going to negotiate with the EU first, et cetera. Uh, But both Obama and Clinton, two people who were against Brexit, they now say that they would respect the decision of Britain, you know, uh, Clinton, for example, said, "quote We respect the choice of the people, the United, uh, the, the choice the people of the United Kingdom have made." She says, "Our first task has to be to make sure that the economic uncertainty created by these events does not hurt working families here in America." So, who knows what she plans to do against the UK, right? Because I mean, certainly you don't want to inspire this freedom-loving movement all over the place. Um, you know, she's got some idea of policies and the policies are all going to be, let's protect working Americans. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different levels on which she would like to, I think, protect working Americans. She means keep power for the government. Uh, here's Obama quote, the people of the United Kingdom have spoken and we respect their decision. He says, the special relationship between the United States and the United Kingdom is enduring, and the United Kingdom's membership in NATO remains a vital cornerstone of U.S. policy, security, and economic policy. So, too, he says, is our relationship with the European Union, which has done so much to promote stability, stimulate economic growth, and foster the spread of democratic values and ideals across the continent and beyond End quote. I want to know where this stimulation of economic growth comes from the European Union. When I was looking at the Wall Street Journal piece, they talked about the fact that the recovery in the European Union outside of Britain was a lot slower than the economic recovery in Britain. And this is one of the signs that Britain would do quite well if it was separated from the European Union. One of the things that I didn't talk about in terms of the list of consequences is there are billions of dollars that annually Britain is forced to pay into the EU as a price of membership and no longer will Britain have to pay these billions of dollars that can't do anything except for help Britain as far as I can tell EU is dragging Britain down and and the idea that somehow the EU stimulates economic growth is another 
fantasy just coming out of Barack Obama's mouth without any particular consequences as, as far as I can tell. Ed Powell says, I sure do hope that Obama campaigns for Hillary in the fall. Where do things stand, Ed, by the way? What I'm hearing is that Trump's poll numbers are totally in the tank. I don't hear a whole pile of enthusiasm about Gary Johnson, although his numbers in some you know, polls right after it kind of narrowed down to the three of them was fairly respectable. He was polling, what, at least 10 or 11 percent. What is going on with that? And, you know, again, what does it mean that he's mid-campaign going over to, you know, uh, Scotland to put out some business fires or something? It doesn't show a, a great position of strength. It says Trump is still behind Hillary by six to seven points. So I guess he's hoping that he can get all the Johnson people to come over to his side. But I doubt that people who are wanting to vote for Johnson are going to end up voting for him. We're going to see how it goes. Um, We already talked a little bit about Texas. There is an article that I have at DontLetItGo.com. You can check it out. Calls for Texas independence surge in the wake of Brexit vote. This is going to be quite inspirational for people. Uh, Yeah, they're saying... uh, Trump has no ground game and no money, no money for his campaign. They're all talking about that. Yeah, the woes of of Trump. I've been seeing some of that this week. So it's going to be interesting when he gets back. Is he going to be able to recover any numbers or not? Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and change topics a little bit. Let me go back over to the studio and make sure I don't have another call on this topic on Brexit. You can still call in on Brexit if you want, but I don't have a lot more time. So I want to get through some of these other stories that I have. I don't have too much here, but one of them is an editorial that Trevor Nielsen sent over. Actually, he sent an article that talked about the editorial, and then I went back to the editorial. This is from earlier in the month, but it is significant. It's about California. So earlier in the show, people were talking about the fact, you know, Ed was saying, you're going to have to leave California pretty soon. Forget all of the economic problems, the overregulation and everything else that we're dealing with here in California, but How about this? This is a piece from the Washington Times, one that is currently being blocked by a pop-up ad. Okay, here we go. So the California State Senate voted 28 to 8, and this was, you know, very early in June, right? 28 to 8, they voted to exempt itself from the gun control laws that apply to the rest of the populace. So legislators in California apparently think they alone are worthy to pack heat on the streets for personal protection and that the masses ought to wait until the police arrive. And the Washington Times, this is an editorial opinion of the Washington Times as such, no particular writer, it's it's the paper. They say this is just one of many bills Golden State politicians used this legislative session to set themselves apart from the little people the ones who pay their inflated salaries. Annual compensation for legislators averages about 140000 not counting luxurious perks such as taxpayer-funded cars and free gasoline. By comparison, the average Californian earns 50000 a year. The unemployment rate is 11.9%, which is far above the national average. Exact salaries for state assemblymen and senators are obscured by a use of a, quote, per diem payment scheme, that shelters a significant chunk of income from taxation. But, you know, this, imagine this, this idea that they say, well, look, they should be able to 
carry guns to defend themselves. But all of us, we should just have to wait until the police arrive. And then when you look at something like what just happened in Orlando and you're telling them this, that they, you know, the the little people, so to speak, just need to wait until the police arrive and that they, the lawmakers, should be free of this. This is truly revulsifying. Again, this was in, you know, early in June and it was in California. But there has been talk about this double standard for politicians and other people who are connected elsewhere. And I wanted to play you, if I can do it, an audio clip uh, where they're talking exactly about this thing. I'm going to plug in the magic connector into my iPad, see if I can get over to this other piece. Again, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to see all of the program notes that I put together today. But uh, Bosch Faustin sent over a link to me about this same topic of a double standard that politicians have about guns used for protection, guns used for self-defense. This is a piece over at the Daily Caller, and it features an audio clip from Wrangell. So let me go ahead and I'll boot this up here. I gotta get, I gotta get you to a certain place in the clip because it's about 50 seconds into the clip where it actually gets a bit interesting. So let me see if I can get it here. One of the things that people tend to wonder is that hardly anybody, I mean, getting a New York City field carry permit is so rare. And the only people who tend to get it are the very connected, very wealthy, or if you happen to know the right guy in NYPD, he'll uh, help you out. I'm glad to hear you said that very few people can get it. We don't need that many guns. And Sorry, I turned off my thing. Um, he says uh, he says he's he's happy that people are not able to get these concealed carry permits. And he says, yes, corruption is bad, but he's happy that people aren't able to get these concealed carry permits. And again, what she's talking about is that it seems that if you try to get a concealed carry permit in New York, only the very wealthy, only the very connected politically are able to get these concealed carry permits. And he thinks, oh, well, that's a good thing. Let's continue. Know, know that bribery's are involved in, in getting a gun, and that is wrong. But overall, if it's difficult to get a concealed weapon permit, I'm glad to hear that. But why is it that only these wealthy well, that's corruption, wealthy and I celebrities and like, and and then the people in your district, a number of them who are law-abiding citizens, many of them would want to carry concealed carry. I, I wouldn't want them to have it. I know what you're trying to say. But, Corruption is corruption is bad. Okay, but like, but, let's but, talk about that for a second. Well, I should say the uh, uber wealthy who who have protection, had that protection, but individuals who are law-abiding citizens in your district should not. Let's talk about that. Well, law-abiding citizens just shouldn't have to carry a gun. You know that. So you're not going to push me in that direction. But you're protected by guns all over the place here in the capital. <laughs> Well, that's a little different. I think we deserve, I think we need to be protected down here. Okay. Did you hear him? He says, I think we deserve, and then he corrects himself, I think we need to be protected around here. He knows if he says deserve, that he's saying somehow that he is above you. Uh, and what does he want you to do? He wants you to just wait 
for the police to come save you, like those people at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando had to wait for the police to come save them. What about the 49 people who lost their lives? What about all of the other people who were injured, some of them quite critically? This is horrible. Selfishness in the chat room says, yes, cease John Stossel's attempt to get a gun permit in New York. That is probably a great case study there. Tim in the chat room, Tim Peck says, waiting, if you're, if you're telling them you have to, to wait, you, it, this implies that you don't have a right to self-defense. And what we've talked about, what I've talked about before is, you know, you do, you have a right to self-defense. And in fact, somebody wrote on my blog as a comment to a recent show quite eloquently about, you know, the fact that you do delegate your right to self-defense in a limited way to the government doesn't mean that you no longer have that right. You still have that right. But the moral thing to do is to delegate that for the most part, except in these exigent circumstances, to the government. That doesn't mean that you should not defend yourself in exigent circumstances. And, of course, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have the right to a gun to do that. So, you know, here's you've got another politician. Defense for him, no defense for us. It is ridiculous. Um, Let me see what else I've got over at the blog before we are going to have to wrap up here in a few minutes. Um, again, go to don'tletitgo.com if you want to check out all of this stuff. One I just included here, there's a series that Vodka Pundit does over at pjmedia.com, and he calls it the Obamacare fail of the day. And it's just a continuing documentation of all the different ways that Obamacare has been both immoral and impractical. He says, not even an insurance giant Blue Cross Blue Shield can make a go of selling Obamacare plans in a relatively healthy state like Minnesota. Blue Cross Blue Shield is apparently pulling out of the individual market there. Quote, based on current medical claim trends, Blue Cross is projecting a total loss of more than $500 million in the individual health plan segment over three years. And this is what Blue Cross Blue Shield of Minnesota said in a statement. They reported a loss of $265 million on insurance operations from individual market plans in 2015. They said claims for medical care far exceeded premium revenue for those plans. Quote, the individual market remains in transition, and we look forward to working toward a more stable path with policy leaders here in Minnesota and at the national level. End quote. You know what that's quote that's code for, right? They're saying uh, we're shrugging. If you change the law, we might come back into this market. That's what that's code for. Uh, continuing with their statement, quote: shifts and changes in health plan participation and market segments have contributed to a volatile individual market where costs and prices have been escalating at unprecedented levels. End quote. Uh, and then the article that. Vodka Pundit is quoting from says that the decision is going to have far-reaching implications. Yes, of course it is. Was it do it further consolidates the market? It further puts pressure on government then to come in and take over insurance entirely and, and to make a single payer. Here is a statement from Governor Mark Dayton of Minnesota. Quote, this creates a serious and unintended challenge for the individual market. He says the Minnesotans who seek coverage there tend to have greater, more expensive health care needs than the general population. 
He says, Blue Cross Blue Shield's decision to leave the individual market is symptomatic of conditions in the national health insurance marketplace, end quote. And Vodka Pundit Stephen Green, he says, we warned you, we warned you again and again for years and years going back to when Obamacare had yet to be signed into law. He says, we effing told you that the bill's perverse incentives would cause the so-called exchanges to fill up with people too old, poor, and sick to make them financially viable. Completely, yes, I agree, completely, completely expected. So what are we seeing? We're seeing a continued consolidation of the so-called insurance market. There isn't really a market for insurance, as I've said many times before. It's not insurance that they're selling. They're selling some kind of weird prepaid voucher. The way the, the analogy that I've made is when you buy um, one of those coupon booklets, you know, like maybe the local sports teams sell them and stuff, you know, kids sport team. And they say, can you buy this local coupon booklet to help support my team? And you pay 20 bucks and then you get hundreds of dollars worth of discounts at local businesses. You've seen those before. That's kind of what you're buying now with health insurance. You are buying the right to supposedly buy some sort of discount on health care. Maybe you get a little bit of prepaid health care as part of it, too. So there's some freebie coupons in there as well. A lot of the freebie coupons you get in your health insurance plan are stuff that you don't even use, especially if you're a man and you've paid for maternity care. You know, everyone talks about, oh, women, you don't have to pay any more than the men anymore. Okay, that's because the men are paying more. They're paying for stuff that they didn't get. So, yeah, you know, it's not a health insurance market. It's some kind of weird prepaid health care, maybe discount, but not really market. That's what it is. He says the failure of this is not symptomatic of the quote national health insurance marketplace. It's symptomatic of a health coverage system that was already malfunctioning then into which Obamacare threw sand and monkey wrenches, right? So he's pointing out the fact that we have not had a free market in health insurance for decades. So insofar as you were blaming the problems in health insurance on capitalism, it wasn't true. It was due already to government intervention, and now all you've done is you've made things worse. He says, the whole thing is now ground to such a halt that Blue Cross Blue Shield, the first and last resort for so many customers in so many states, stood to lose half a billion dollars in just one medium-sized state. Anyway, um, this is horrible, you know, and what are, what are, you know, our Republican lawmakers doing? The program that they've laid out is just going to be Obamacare light, so to speak, and I don't think it's going to save anything. You know, if, if anything, it's going to maybe stall off some of the problems for a while, but then what will happen long term? You've got the left, they're going to call for increased centralization in that market. Uh, another story that I got, and this is from Rob Abiera little local story from Oklahoma. It's attractive, especially if you're hungry right now. There has been an arrest in Oklahoma. Someone has been arrested for making bacon vodka. And that is bacon-infused vodka. The manager of the pump bar near the Paseo Arts District in Oklahoma City was recently arrested. Why? Because he dared to and I, that's my word, the dare, but he, he was arrested for infusing the bar's liquors with other flavors, including bacon, jalapenos, and garlic. Oh, the scandal, right? 
says the bar's owner is fighting the criminal charge against his employee, but he's also asked the state to determine whether establishments like his can add fruit, vegetables, spices, and cured meats to alcohol. Can you believe this, that you could get arrested because you dared to add bacon, for example, to a bottle of vodka? That is just insanely ridiculous. Um, so this is an article from KGOU.org, but they say that you know they actually don't know on a state level whether it's legal for them to do this. And here's somebody who actually was arrested who had to spend a few days in jail because of putting bacon in vodka. That seems pretty crazy. Uh, McDermott, who himself is the owner of the bar, he says, you should see the look on people's faces. The laughs when you say that my manager went to county lockup for three days because we put strips of bacon inside a bottle of vodka. Uh, he says, uh, actually someone else says, who is this? John Masick, he's a, an able attorney, an attorney for um, some sort of a business association in Oklahoma. He says, if the restaurants are doing something unlawful, then they need to be notified that it's unlawful. And it's true. As it stands right now, there's one guy sitting in jail, and that particular bar is not able to sell the drinks with this infused stuff the way the other ones are. And they said that this is an economic cost, of course, to the to the bar. And in the meantime, there are other bars all around town who are doing the same thing, and they're, it's selective prosecution. So that is not fair at all. There's one other story I want you to go check out at don'tletitgo.com. And it is one that I talked about yesterday on Tammy Bruce's show. It's good news. I think it's going to warm your heart if Brexit didn't already do it enough. Ted Cruz is going to hold a hearing on Tuesday on the cover-up of, of Islamic terror by the Obama administration. So kudos to Ted Cruz for doing that. Let's all watch on Tuesday when he does it. I'm going to see if I'm going to do a show at a special time Next week, I might do a show on an earlier day next week because I will be going for a couple days to Ocon and I won't be able to do the normal Friday show next week. So stay, stay tuned. Follow me either on Twitter at Amy Peekoff. Go over and follow the blog at DontLetItGo.com or if you like Facebook, go on to the Don't Let It Go on her page on Facebook to be updated on when I'm going to do the show next week, everyone. Okay, so thank you for tuning in and kudos to Great Britain for Brexit, and we will talk soon. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.